Contrary Journey with Velvel Sparser Bard. Introduction Lost Places, Lost Love All journeys have secret destinations of which the traveller is unaware. Martin Buber I fell in love with Velvelsparzer 130 years after his death. Saul Lipschen introduced us. In his History of Yiddish Literature, Saul wrote that Velvel, Benjamin Wolf Ehrenkrantz, was born in 1826 in Sparaz, Galicia, that he wrote scoffing Hebrew and Yiddish verse, that he was considered heretical by the conservative Jewish community, that he fled to Romania in 1845 and spent the next 25 years singing, writing poems and carousing. A magic word that conjures up all manner of romantic excess. Then, in his fifties, he married his great love, Malkala the Beautiful, in Constantinople, and died three years later. What turned mere acquaintance into love? One dazzling sentence. Sparzer might well have attained the pinnacle of fame if he had not squandered his talent in disreputable Romanian inns and Turkish coffee houses. Doesn't that make imagination real, wake up longing? Love often begins with more banal catalysts. Would you like a beer? What a beautiful dog. Do you know the time? I began making plans. Let's not tackle Malkula the Beautiful yet. Just push her aside like any cumbersome mate in an illicit affair. Together, Velvel and I will flee Galicia and wander along Romania's pitted lanes. Together we'll idle and squander in low bars. I'll cheer him on, poke his ribs with a jocular elbow when his mood slides into its recurrent gloom. Or, pinching his ear between thumb and forefinger, I'll tweak him back to joy. Unless I'm inventing a cheerier me, what will happen when the romance of the highway wears thin? Will I evolve into a harridan, thin-lipped and sour? The sort who chastises a brilliant love for his drunken bouts, for his loose-fingered relationship to cash that leaves our couple ever dependent upon charity. How will we know if we don't give it a whirl? My grandmother Makla had a large painting, one she took with her no matter how often she moved. It was, to me, a banal rural scene, a lush meadow, and deep in the scrabble of a copse, the suggestion of a wooden hut. That picture reminded her of a particular place near the town where she was born, Boritsk, in the former Russian Pale. It was one of the few things she ever told me about the old country, the only hint that something had been lost or traded in. Further questioning only met with, that won't interest you. But she was wrong. It would have. Even back then I was on the lookout for the old days, for images from a world just out of sight, and I wanted to know how she got from there, that remote secretive place, to here, a flat Ontario landscape. By the end of the 19th century, Jewish women in the old country were being nourished 
on the new secular literature, on tales of true love and equality. The most courageous had begun refusing arranged marriages to pious men. How was I to know that my grandmother had once been a firebrand, an anarchist, one of the radical women of her time? Only a few years ago did Helen, an old family friend, mention the hard-headed debates, the demands for social justice, the passionate activism out at the Workmen's Circle Colony in Pickering, Ontario. By the time I knew her, Machla had given up the fight. The Workmen's Colony had evolved into a comfortable family cottage world where, during those yellow, heat-soaked summer days, retired folks tended to vegetable gardens and prepared pickles. Dry and caustic, Machla expected conformity from her four sons and her grandchildren. We were to do well in school, be popular, successful, meet suitable mates, live in big houses, wear gold, and have clever children. The usual. To me, such gold seemed dull. With a liberating disregard for rules, I planned to meet malcontents, iconoclasts, people who didn't fit in, those who had escaped familial, social, and religious pressure. And I dreamt of faraway places. I started wandering late at night. By the time I was fourteen, I was climbing through my bedroom window and shinnying down the drainpipe, sticking to the shadows, learning to be invisible. I lurked in backyards all over the city, peeked into windows, saw how others lived. There wasn't much of interest. People watched TV or, perfectly immobile, stared at nothing. Sometimes they talked or sat until late with friends. But out in the cold dark or up in the branches of a tree to see the higher floors, I experienced the secret thrill that gives voyeurs and peepers their raison d'être. Dreamy, secretive, a poor student, ever ready to lie, I had a freedom other more obedient children didn't. I travelled alone, learned every bus and streetcar route in Toronto, every far-flung corner of the city. The back-and-forth rides through the paltry twelve stations of the subway gave me a special kick. By seventeen I was gone for good, slipping over the American border and heading for New York with a precious five-dollar bill safe in my pocket. There was a whole exciting world to be discovered. How places and sounds have vanished, taken uniqueness with them. I've seen it happen. As a social critical artist and a teller of tales in modest settings, front rooms, back kitchens, open fields, public halls and many low bars, I've always chosen itinerancy over comfort and security. I've been shifting across the Earth's surface for well over half a century now, and doing it on the cheap. No soulless or chic hotels, no tourist venues for me, just sleeping in open fields or cars or crumbling castles or down-at-heel inns, crossing much of Europe on foot, lurking in unsavoury places, tasting life in French, German, English, Dutch, Hungarian, Latvian, Lithuanian, Polish, Greek and Turkish villages. And believe me, we've lost a lot 
virtuoso spoon players in English miners' bumps, Bulgarian storefront bars where women sang in high-pitched traditional tones while their mustachioed lovers watched with cynical eyes. Grim Hungarian back rooms where proud gypsy musicians played cymbalums, violins, violas, bass fiddles, while garlic fried on a hot plate. German villages where roads were unpaved and sun-heated sweet straw and ruddy folk squeezed accordions. Austrian country inns where stranger-hating men tickled zithers. Dusty French towns, undisturbed by tourism, where house facades were neglected and hurdy-gurdies whined of fallow fields. Wooden cottages on shore-lapping North American lakes where men sawed at violins and bears snuffled around the vegetable patch. Seaside villages where frame houses sagged and wind-pushed screen doors made music of another kind. Those spoon players, the fine mustachioed men, the singers with their high-pitched tones and the hurdy-gurdies have all vanished. Lakes are churned by speeding boats. European towns are bland and tidy. Housing developments have spread like fungi, and traditional musicians have been humiliated out by youths screaming, Get modern! Today's cultural references demand a break with the past, and little has survived the onslaught of commercial noise, mass entertainment, bling, cement, and polyvinyl chloride. Reason and observation have been replaced by canned laughter, binge-watching, must-have products, and the star or victim of the moment. Gone are sounds, smells, and feelings. In their place are historical reconstructions, touchy-feely interactive museums, atmosphere candles, world music, sound and light shows, all as authentic as any Disney creation. We didn't value what we had. We didn't cherish or preserve it. And we'll never get it back, despite designer determination. I'm just another silver-haired croc tilting backward? Certainly not. A critical scent should be the essence of the present-day spirit. Change, ever vaunted as progress, must be weighed before acceptance. Travelling into the past means abandoning preconceived ideas. Did the cosy, welcoming shtetl, the Jewish section of a town within a larger town, ever truly exist? It's the one promoted to tradition-thirsty heritage travellers and a sitcom-nurtured society. A family-friendly fantasy world where solidarity, kindness, love and pious warmth reigned. But doesn't such unity depend upon conformity and obedience, on submitting to the rules, on biting your tongue and accepting values not yours? It means tolerating superstition and fearing gossip. It means mistaking duty for love. It means terror of the big wide world just outside your door. It's refusing to take the road less trodden. The 19th century what a time of violence and change, of cultural wealth, questioning, experimentation and discovery. It was a century of brilliance in art, music, science, literature and architecture. It was a time in which old social orders were challenged and overthrown. 
when it seemed that observation and reason might triumph over obscurantism, when some found the courage to defy society, accept banishment, risk imprisonment and death. In Eastern Europe, the 19th century saw the end of serfdom. A peasantry, heretofore ignorant and subjugated, could now demand schooling and justice. And a handful of aristocrats, those able to rise to the challenge of a new order, could and did help usher in progressive change. In the Jewish world, the Enlightenment, the Haskalah, begun in Germany a century earlier, was challenging the religious stranglehold in Galicia, Romania and the Russian Pale and opening the door to secular education. Despite popular belief, not all Jews who abandoned their villages were economic exiles. There were others, iconoclasts like Velvel Sparzer, who rejected the status quo and sought freedom of thought and movement, the right to read and create modern literature, to play and enjoy music, to create and analyse art, to question belief or refuse it altogether. Most gathered in cities, although that choice usually meant poverty and factory slog. Others changed continents and helped build railways, searched for gold and silver, carved out homesteads in deep forests, started pioneering farms or opened new schools. Not a few became actors, musicians, teachers and writers and were responsible for a great outpouring of symphonies, novels, short stories, poems, essays and plays. All knew the exile's misery, but they did have one thing in common. They were starting anew, abandoning frustration. But enough. Time to step back two centuries, find my dearest Velvel, and begin our glorious romance. I want to learn the colour of his eyes and the fineness of his hair. Tell me, is Malkala the beautiful really so beautiful? Really? How beautiful? With Velvel, my life will again change. I'll escape modern sterility, video clips, flat-screen televisions, cell phones, thump noise, ski-doos, sea-doos, quad bikes, telephone hawkers and speedways. With Velvel, I will slip out of community grasp, head for the border, journey into the old country and see what remains of another century. I will once again become a thrilled peeper, observing unseen, sniffing out shadows. I need no guide with the pre-selected venue, for I'll be shepherded by the first-hand experience of Velvo's letters from Galicia, Romania and Turkey, by the men who knew him and by others who lived through and wrote about that time. Let all who want a glimpse into the past join me. We'll take to the road, bump along with Velvel and the other rebels. A Contrary Journey with Velvel Sparzer, Bard by Jill Callender Published by Claret Press, London